0: Hello and Shalom, Shalom, welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. You probably noticed in the title that today's study is on the Deuteronomy chapters 21 to 26, but this does not mean we will cover these six great and massive chapters, but we will navigate through them and follow some themes which together will show us the humane and really caring side of the Mosaic Law. We will continue to look into the laws of warfare and how kind and considerate they are to the soldiers, to nature and even to the enemies. We will look at the laws concerning our neighbors, how we ought to always think of their welfare when we build a home, when we go about our daily business. As always, a a particular attention is given to those who are abused in our society, particularly the poor. We will also make some correlations with the law of the Messiah as laid down for us in the epistle, that is in the letters of the New Testament. These laws are an extension of the Mosaic law. Both are called the law of the Lord. And so I'm looking forward to begin this study. Now, before this, as we usually do, let us take a question we have received. Sharon will read the question for us. Good
1: evening. Good evening. I've been listening to you for a couple of years, and I have grown so much in reading and understanding the Bible, for which I am grateful. I've heard you give history from the Talmud, and I've also heard there are so many questionable things in there as well. So I'm just wondering where you stand when it comes to this book. Thank you.
0: Now, thank you for this important question. First, let me say that the Talmud is not one book written by one author, but about 60 books written by many more authors spanning over a few centuries. The Talmud is a combination of the Mishnah, which is the oral law, and the commentaries on the Mishnah, which is called the Gemara, the two of them form the Talmud. Furthermore, there are two Talmuds, the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud. The difference is that there was many amendments and additions made to the Babylonian Talmud. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the rabbinical center moved from Jerusalem to Babylon. Where they carried this Talmud with them, the Jerusalem Talmud stayed Of course, in Jerusalem, this is why it's called the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, concerning the oral law, according to Jewish tradition, it was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But in contrast with what Moses received and wrote down, these were not written down, as the tradition says. This is why it is called the oral law. Now, according to this tradition, these laws were passed down from generation to generation. But because of the dispersion of the Jews in the first century uh, and fear that many of these traditions and laws would otherwise be lost, they chose to write them down alongside its commentaries. This is how the Talmud, both of them actually came into existence now. That the Talmud contains some questionable things, and it does, by the way. Does, this does not annul other contents written by the authors, which help uh, to this believer understanding the context of the first century Judaism. For instance... Even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, it quotes one of its prolific Talmudic author Gamaliel, in Acts 5.34, where we read, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And there he gave the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel, a very wise advice about the new formed body of the Messiah, the church that is, when he said, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be be found fighting against God. And indeed, it is from God, because after 2,000 years, we believers in Yeshua are still here. And so it was a wise counsel that this man who wrote so much in the Talmud, actually gave. Uh, we later, later uh, learned that is, in Acts 22, verse 3, that he was Paul's teacher. We read that he said that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel as one of his students. Now, two learning men, by the way, named Gamaliel are mentioned in the Talmud. The one in the New Testament cites is Rabban Gamaliel, which concords with the dates. This Gamaliel, by the way, is cited over 700 times in the Babylonian Talmud and 450 times in the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, if Luke in the book of Acts cited one of the authors of the Talmud, surely we can pull some historical facts to help us better understand the context of scriptures. Furthermore, I want to say that many parts of the Talmud throw so much light to many passages of the New Testament, enhancing our understanding. For instance, consider the passage of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7 to 9, which happened during the Feast of Sukkot, also known as Tabernacles, where Yeshua gave two very important statements that could be better understood in the light of what the Talmud says. One elaborate ceremony the Talmud speaks about is the ceremony of lights. It explains that at Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, they used to light very large candelabras whose light was visible kilometers away. This was done to symbolize the Jerusalem of the Messianic times. And it was at this very time that Yeshua said, I am the light of the world in John 8.12. Considering the back the, the background, the words of Yeshua are very much enhanced here. A second ceremony called the Ceremony of Water Drawing. During this same feast, they used to carry water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple with much singing and rejoicing and then pour this water on the side of the temple, creating a stream of, of water which symbolized the altar of the Temple of the Millennium as described in Ezekiel in in his chapter 40 to 48. So this prophet goes on to describe a river of water coming out of the side of the altar. There at this time, and at his last feast of booth or tabernacles, Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Again, this enhances our understanding of the word's Of the Gospels. So to quote the Talmud is like quoting any of the Apocrypha books or historical books like those of Philo or Josephus, not because they are inspired, for they are not inspired. In fact, they contain many mistakes and doubtful writings, but because of their historical content. Now, a couple of words concerning the Jewish attitude toward the Talmud. Perhaps because the Talmud was compiled at the time when the Jews were dispersed and were so desperate to keep the traditions and rabbinical Judaism alive, they, they, these writings came to be regarded as inspired to the point that the Talmud is often called the Torah itself within many circles of Judaism. This in itself is dangerous because the Torah or the Tanakh, which is the true and inspired word of God is often relegated to second class, while the Talmud and all the rabbinical commentaries play a greater role in Jewish life. In fact, it is noteworthy to mention how much more time yeshiva students at Jewish rabbinical schools spend in studying and memorizing the Talmud. This is something we need to keep in mind, especially when witnessing to Jewish people they need to know the difference from what comes from the Tanakh the word of God itself and what is additional commentary given to the rabbis the priority of a personal relationship with God which yeshua so clearly emphasized it is outweighed by Talmudic teaching which emphasized the letter of the law and the strict obligations required by every Jew Putting the Talmud in its rightful place helps us to recognize its limited but also important value. Let us now go to the Book of Deuteronomy. In our last study, we stopped at such a great place which shows how the Mosaic Law is so caring. We are in page 18 of your handout at the bottom. By the way, many of the things I, I say are not in your handout because I have added so much more for this particular class. So we looked at the section on warfare and the way it exempts some soldiers from going to war. There are four exemptions, and each is, a, is as touching as the next one. The first exemption was for the one who had built a house and never lived in it. The individual was exempted from uh, going to war so he could enjoy his home and also his family. For a home, of course, implies a family. A second exemption was for those who had set up a business like a vineyard and never took advantage of it. He also would not have to go to war until he enjoys the fruit of his labor. Isn't this nice? A third one was for the one who was betrothed, that is engaged to a woman, but who had not yet married her. He was forbidden to go to war. It would perhaps be too too hard for his fiancée to handle. Another possibility for this exemption might be that by consuming the marriage, if the wife then conceives, the continuation of the husband's names and rights would be assured even if he later dies at war. If he goes to war earlier than the marriage, remembering him would stand at a greater risk. And the fourth is about the faint hearted, the, the one who's afraid to fight. He was also not required to to go to war and this of course is wise for fear (laughs) really is contagious and israel was often called to fight much more numerous uh you know armies furthermore behind this fear was also a lack of faith for very often the lord told the israelites that he will be with them at war fear then would be a sign of unbelief and it would of course affect others So in all these exemptions, one thing which these laws demanded was a total commitment for every soldier. If one of them thought of his fiancée or the business he just built as a priority or if he was afraid, he would have more chances to fall in battle. And he would surely also negatively influence the other soldiers. In that case, he would be better if he stayed home. There's a great similarity, by the way, with the work of the Lord that he has given to his workers to do even today. We often, by the way, are sin as soldiers. The book of Ephesians speaks of putting on the armor of God. But the success of any ministry depends on the level of our commitment, of, of that is, of, of our level of involvement. One cannot be divided between the things of this world and the work of God. Of God. Another important point in ministry is the unified attitude in fellowship we must have. Just like the soldiers, like the soldier that is, can negativ- negatively influence the productivity of the other soldiers, ministry works in the same way. Maybe this is one main reason why many do not take the step forward in working for God. It requires actually full commitment. And so the soldiers who had to build a house or open a business or was engaged or was afraid did not have to enter the battlefield. And within this law of warfare, there is another beautiful one given to protect the prisoners and the soldiers. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we're given an interesting story filled with great concepts. It is the case of a woman taken captive. And it so happens that one soldier really liked her, and he falls in love with her, and so he decides to bring her home to his parents, for obviously uh, he is not married. And here the law regulates the captivity in a very humane way. Usually, assault, rape, and the mistreatment of women were common occurrences during war, but such behavior was not allowed among Israelite soldiers. See how the law now tells the soldiers, the soldier that is how to proceed. See how thorough this law is. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 10 to 12. Uh, We're just going to read these three verses.
1: When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home, to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails.
0: Again, this is the case of a soldier who among the captives sees a beautiful woman and he wants to bring her home. Okay, nothing is wrong with that. But the law here determines two things in order to protect the woman, to protect the soldiers, and to protect the people of Israel. The first thing was Is the woman a good woman? She is about to be brought into the fold of Israel. She is going to be like the... Is she going, that is, to be like the wives of Solomon who brought their gods along with them? Or is she going to be like Ruth or like Rahab who adopted the God of Israel? So to determine such a thing, the period of one full month must pass where the woman was to stay with the soldiers Family. She was to stay at home with them. And so during this month, nothing would happen. She was put in a way on a stage of observation. Was she fit to be among the priestly nation? Second, while she was at home of the soldier's family, another thing was to be determined. Was the soldier attracted to her because of her beauty? Or did, she, uh, did he notice an inner beauty as well? Like as that uh, toward? Esther because our attention in the verse in the passage is brought to her nails and her hair so as a remedy the woman was to cut her hair trim her nails and even change her clothes to that the soldiers originally saw her wear. by doing all this if the soldier's attraction was only physical then it will not last over a month but if his attraction went beyond the physical and he still desired her after one month then he could marry her. This is how the law protected both the woman and the soldier, his family, who was witnessing the whole uh, 30-month event, and it was also protecting the state of Israel from possible infiltration of idolatry. It will be then a beautiful ending, a great marriage, right? However, <clears throat> in case the, soldiers, the soldier that is, does not desire her anymore Uh, But I, I love the way God protects the woman. Look at verse 14.
1: It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her.
0: The principle here is very precious. This law underscores the value of human life. It is contrasted with the terrible treatment of war captives common throughout the ancient nearest. When we read in verse 14, and it shall be if you have no delight in her, that is before the marriage, of course, and after the month of observation, not after they got married, then the soldiers was not to do whatever he wished because... The woman belongs to God. That's the idea. The soldier was not allowed to sell her for money because the woman, whether she was an Israelite or a Philistine or other, she belongs to God. The soldier was not allowed to mistreat her for she is made in the image of God. This then is a great law where everyone is fully protected. And right after this law, we read something that could surprise many, but it flows with the message of the previous laws. See verse 15, how it begins. If a man has two wives, it, it is not okay for a man to have two wives. By stating this, the Bible does not support it, but regulates it. Like divorce, like slavery. God formulated these laws because of the hardness of men's heart, not because he advocates it, as Yeshua teaches in the gospel. In fact, polygamy was never a positive experience in the Old Testament. The Bible never described a happy polygamous marriage. Two or more wives meant so many problems because it was never meant to be. Abraham, he had Hagar as a second wife, but it was out of his lack of faith. First, he went down to Gerar when he was supposed to stay in Israel. Second, he lied about his wife. He said that he was his sister. And after this, Hagar's presence was always a thorn in the flesh for him and his descendants. And consider poor Jacob. He went for one wife, but he ended up with four wives because of his uncle's Laban's treachery and Leah's and Rachel's jealousy. And also because of what he has done himself in lying to his father Isaac. The point is that when God created the marriage, because it is God who created the marriage, he said in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall live his, ma- his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one, echad flesh. One flesh, one echad, as the triunity of God is. Any addition to this oneness is a monstrosity. This is why idolatry or not idolatry, but when one goes to other woman is single, that adultery that is is single that as a grave sin in a marriage. And Deuteronomy twenty one emphasizes this terrible wrong of an additional wife in verse fifteen. He says, And one loved and the other, and loved. But that's not the way it was meant to be. That a man would soon love and prefer that his one wife over the other, the inevitable result was hurt, feelings of jealousy, strife, partiality, favorism, and all that entails. But the lesson found in this verse goes beyond polygamy and speaks about justice and about showing partiality Favorism. Let's read the whole verse.
1: If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved,
0: you know, the, the case given here is about the protection of the children and especially the firstborn. A man could not transfer the inheritance of the firstborn of one wife to the firstborn of a wife more beloved. And beyond this important concept of the firstborn, the underlying principle here is that we must not show partiality or favorism toward one child above the other or uh, one person above another. As Peter says in Acts 10.34, God shows no partiality. And there are many verses in the law of the Messiah that bids us to be fair always. 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord, Messiah Yeshua, and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Our mandate is to love one another without partiality and also our children without partiality and give the firstborn what belongs to the firstborn. Here then is another great law of love which again regulates men's tendencies and lay out for us important principles. As we now move further into chapter 22 up to chapter 26, we're going to look at more of these laws which give man his dignity. And so much respect. Some of other case laws we're about to see seem actually so exclusive and exceptional that they might at first appear so irrelevant to us. But a closer reading will show that they also carry a great weight of applicable truth. We remember that these laws are presented in the same way that the laws of the Messiah, the law of Christ in the New Testament, in a case law that is in case-by-case laws. And the beauty of presenting them this way is that each case is taken independently with respect to the circumstances because we are respectfully made in the image of God and even are called to participate in the thinking process of rendering true justice. The next section speaks of our relationship with our neighbors. What kind of neighbors are we? Uh, are, are we concerned or indifferent about the others? Uh, are we of those who turn our head away when someone is in trouble? The law of God has so much to say about this matter. Let us begin by reading Deuteronomy 21 verses 1 to uh, and 2, where we are taught how to be good neighbors and reflect the love of God to others.
1: You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray, and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him.
0: Now, most of us do not and will never own an ox or a donkey in our lifetime, but this, in these three verses are contained some eternal principles. To begin with, we are here in the lost and found section in the Bible. The first issue concerns the restoration of lost property. People are always misplacing or losing things, purses, money, eyeglasses, pens especially, and pencils. What if you found one of them? The question is, is it yours? What the law says here is that if an item is ever found, it is to be returned to the rightful owner. What if you don't know him? What if you looked for him for many years and you still can't find him? It really doesn't matter for the law says that a found item, item that is, never really belongs to the one who found him. This is where we read It says, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. For how long? It just doesn't say. What we can learn from this is that a found item should always be considered foreign property until restored, if ever. This holds true for today. But this translates to having and developing respect for the other's property. Respecting this law will help us not to transgress the eighth, and the 10th commandment, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. It teaches us to be content with what we have. This is like the case of giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, whoever this Caesar may be. Furthermore, in this law, will bring us to really appreciate and take care of the things we own. However, there's a beautiful twist to this law. There's a provision within this law where the person who found something was given permission to keep it. See how nice this is. Let's go to Deuteronomy 24 and 19. We will close with this.
1: When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands.
0: This, I want to tell you, I find extraordinary. Moses says, if you forget a sheaf, don't go back to get it. It now belongs to the others. You mean that just because I forgot it, I'll lose it? That's not fair, is it? What then can we learn from this? In reality, a sheaf it is a very big thing to forget. And if you forgot it, it is probably because you are already quite full and satisfied. So it doesn't mean as much to you as it would mean to others, and so the law says: if somebody finds it, and probably a poor man, it is his. In fact, the, the the Hebrew word for forget also means to ignore or to cease to care. This must very well indicate that the person was too busy gathering all the blessings, and and, and that thing he forgot was something that he didn't really need. The principle, the principle is in Exodus sixteen eighteen. When God first provided the manna, he ordered that everyone should take a definite amount uh, for each person. And the conclusion one was, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. This is actually what's behind these laws. There are so many more that we'll look together next time we meet. Be blessed.
2: Hallelujah, do